So the daily the other day was. Ow. You okay? Yeah, I'm fine. Was of no interest to me because it was about um, the Democratic debates and like candidates in it, and I was just like preaching choir, can't even vote. So yeah. So instead, I was listening to the read, which I usually don't do while getting ready because I was listening to the daily. And um, Kid Fury was talking about black excellence. And there's this woman in Missouri, I want to see St. Louis. Literally, all she does is prepare school lunches for children in her community who can't afford them. Aww. Yeah. And uh, of course, the government's terrible. So, like, there's a bunch of school boards talking about not giving children any more food if they have any debt on their account, like, all over the country. Like, I've heard multiple stories with the school year starting. This was going to be the policy. So this woman creates, like, bag lunches for kids to, like, come. And, like, they just show up and say, I don't have lunch. And she goes, here, sweetie, like, here's the food for you. So um, because it was early and I was tired and uh, feeling pretty terrible because I had to be up and, like, talking to humans, never a good thing for me. I, like, I went to the GoFundMe page. I was like, I'll throw some money at her. Like, yeah. make some peanut butter sandwiches, get some apples. I'm fine with it. She had set her goal of $1,500, and she started this on August 28th, she's up to $59,165 in a week and a half, two weeks. That's really good. Not for nothing, but the read has, like, a big audience, yeah. too. So well, I'm sure, say, like, like, a lot of it came from there, too. Um, but, yeah, 2,000 donors have kicked in about $60,000 worth of money. That's a lot of peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. Yeah. So... She should be very proud of herself, and I hope whatever's left over, she either continues to do it or gives it to another charity for children or something. But, like, how terrible is it that, like, GoFundMe is the new social safety net and the healthcare system and the political awareness wing of everything, of American society? <laughs> it's America. America. On that note, you ready to go? Welcome to the new episode of Rabbit Holes Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Elise. And I'm your other host, Andy. And welcome to the show. Hello. Um, we just recorded, so we have very few updates other than poop situations and charity donations and all that jazz. Uh, but we will remind you that we're currently running a contest. We are! Why don't you tell the good people about it? So we're running a review-based contest. So if you guys give us a good rating review or really anything middle of the road to... Uh, better. To better. Um, send us a screen capture of it. Either post it to your social media or send it to us in an email at rabbitholespodcast at gmail.com tag us and make sure you tag us when you post it uh to your social medias whatever ones you use not snapchat because we can't figure that out yeah i don't have snapchat or kiki or whatsapp or like look we're old you get facebook twitter and instagram and you should be happy (laughs) i only started using instagram for this (laughs) and i still don't use twitter yeah i just poke in there every so often and then get the fuck out, because it is not bueno. <laughs> uh, so do that. Give us a rating review. Send it to us. Um, we'll throw everybody's name into a hat and either have the cats or my kids pick them out. 
And Your then, kids would probably do it. That's true. <laughs> Mine won't. They get suspicious. <laughs> we'll have to lace it with a lot of catnip. Maggie will get in there. I tried. They get that suspicious. As soon as I sit down on the ground, they figure they're going to get their hair trimmed or their mm, nails picked. They don't trust me. We're shit and they shouldn't. <laughs> so my kids will probably do it. Yeah. Uh, and then we will let you pick out whatever item uh, you would like from our merch store. Yes. T-shirts, poster, mug. Notebook. Notebook. $3 sticker. You know, whatever floats your boat. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe we'll send you a sticker for <laughs> included. <laughs> yeah, we'll throw that in there. <laughs> and we're going to run this until October 4th. I'm glad you remember that date, because I did not. It's the date I have to go to the doctor. I'm okay. getting my IUD put in. Yay. Yay. Happy free adult time without the worry of more ankle biters. I don't have that worry right now, because uh, vasectomies. Yes. It's just so the fact that I don't have every 110 days, I don't have a 28-day period. Mm. Fair. Fair, fair, fair. Because that was horrible. I mean, sucks to be Dan, though. <laughs> He went through that. And... <laughs> you know what? He needed to take one for the team. You've been did. through two pregnancies and two labors. It's the least he could do. And a lot of fertility medication. You did not ask for like a toe or a finger. So this is like real <laughs> low stakes for him. <laughs> yeah, but we're going to be doubly <laughs> protected. Yes. So if you do have a child, we're talking like coming of the second Messiah levels. Exactly. Of <laughs> yeah. Where was I? We were joking. Uh, about something, and I was like, yeah, no, because um, I, I call my kids Pumpkin 1 and Pumpkin 2 sometimes. Okay. Call them Pumpkin. And uh, and Liz was like, Pumpkin 3 and 4? And I'm like, there's no Pumpkin 3 or 4, sweetie. If there is, Mommy has a lot of explaining to do yeah. to Daddy. <laughs> <laughs> Let's get the children know about these things early. <laughs> They're young enough, they know why not, but I was in, I was at like a birthday party, and the right. adults were like cackling with laughter. Yeah. <laughs> It's like all children's movies are like actually adult movies with like bright colors. Yeah. My husband's watching The Incredibles for the 50 millionth time right now. <laughs> I prefer The Incredibles too. But anyway. See, this is why you like, you should have trained those kids on Looney Tunes and not taught them anything about any other cartoon. Because then you just get the joy of watching Looney Tunes nonstop. And Looney Tunes never gets old. I don't really like Looney Tunes. Then you're a sociopath. <laughs> no, I think we've established in the last episode you're I the might be a sociopath. <laughs> now, my kids were voluntarily watching the original Inspector Gadget with me the other day, because it's nice. on Amazon Prime. Ooh! I have my next high watch. Yeah, it is still, like... I'm gonna you I'm gonna send a message to you, um and so do we still like this because I think they should definitely cover Inspector Gadget. Right. Because um it's still amazing and very um forward thinking, let's say. Right, because Penny was running that show. Well not like that. She had a tablet before tablets were. Oh. They had a smartwatch. Remember she used to talk to yeah. Brain? Um, what else was it? We were pointing at something else. That's like they do that now. And there's a bunch of stuff in there that like we're like, hey, we have that now. Can we talk about the fact, though, that uh, somebody in the Child Protective Service basically gave a child to RoboCop? <laughs> but, like, an ineffective RoboCop? <laughs> like, what was wrong with that agent that day? <laughs> what happened to her parents? So many questions. <laughs> so I'm just saying, uh, so do we still like this? If they need co-hosts for that episode, Annie knows what she's talking about, and I have... 
30 some odd years distance between the last time I actually watched an episode. <laughs> and yet still some things stand out real big in my mind. Well, like I used to watch that because it used to come on CTV in the mornings and I'd eat my breakfast of my soft boiled egg and my toast <laughs> because that's what I ate like okay. every morning. And so I'd sit at the coffee table and watch TV while I ate it. And it would be um, Inspector Gadget. Followed by one of those, like, five-second, either, cat like, five-second, ca- five, ten-minute, either Captain Nemo or, like, the Hercules from the 70s shorts. Okay. Hercules! Hercules! The ring! Herc, the ring! No. Okay. Got nothing. Very bad. Very bad. <laughs> it's, like, from the 70s animation. And then, usually, I'm not sure if it was before Inspector Gadget or after Teddy Ruxpin would be on. Teddy Ruxpin. That was my jam. So, that was why, like, every morning I would watch that. I had a Teddy Ruxpin doll, and when Teddy Ruxpin showed up on 30 Rock as Geist's daughter's lawyer, I lost my shit. I had to stop the the the, the PVR, because, like, I just, I could not get it together to watch the rest of the episode. <laughs> I was like, I did not know Teddy could have represented me. <laughs> also, the original Furby. Yes. Yes. Uh, Teddy or Popples? Popples didn't talk, though. Teddy... Care Bear? Did Care Bears ever talk? But didn't Teddy have... Did like, Care Bears ever talk? Did you just ask if Care Bears ever talked? Like, the toy. Oh, okay. But, like, wasn't one of the Teddy Rocks when you had a tape oh, that yeah. you could put in on? That was the whole thing. You put a yeah. tape in Teddy and it talked to you. That's and what the, I mean. the mouth moved. That's why it's the original Furby. Okay, good point. Popples never did that, and Care Bears, True. like, the toys the never toys did that. Good point, yeah. good point. But you do know the Care Bears talked, right? Yes. Like, okay. And so did Popples. They both had a cartoon. Yes. <laughs> but I'm talking about the actual... Toy. I might still have my popple around here somewhere. I still have mine. Good times, eh? <laughs> and, and, and our enjoyment of our listeners. Yes, 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 yes. Uh, so I think on that note, we need to dive into the yes, the actual story, actual story, not just in our way, way back nostalgia. We're children of the '80s, and mine's not going to be anywhere near as fun as Popples. That looks terrible. So, because I'm doing my second half of my two-part from last yes. week. So I told you about Ursula and Sabina Erickson and the twin sisters who went real weird at one point. A couple of the, break. Yeah. Yeah, they had well, a, a mental serious, break. Yeah. A mental break. Um, they got smoked by a couple of trucks on a UK highway. Uh, Sabina killed a man. Slapped another one with a roofing tile, which I still don't understand. But okay. Well, like this, yeah, those thick terracotta British roofing mm, tiles. Okay, but she had it in her pocket. Well, she was wandering around all day. Maybe she found it on a building site. But no, Think that's not like, my thing. My thing yeah. is, how do you get one of those in your pocket? Not easily, no. That's what I'm saying. Was she wearing, like, oh, maybe she was wearing those, you know... Um, Big cardigans? No, like, the pockets. The pants cargo with all pants? the pockets. Yeah, the cargo pants. That was been very popular. Yeah, yeah, air appropriate. Yeah. Mm, there we go. <laughs> so... <laughs> Our listeners are like, what the fuck are they doing this? (laughs) So one of the theories behind why the Erickson sisters did what they did was that they were suffering from a condition called folie à deux. And that's a topic that's been on my to-do list for the show for ages, but I felt I did a lot of psychological stuff really early on, so I kind of put a pin in that one and I decided I would come back to it. Uh, And so this seemed like the perfect time to do that. And it's also my first two-parter, so and I'm back-to-back, so stars lined up. Not like the traffic that Sabina and Harrison tried to walk into, but that's another story. <laughs> so let's do this thing. 
Here's a pretty straightforward definition of the condition from Psych Scene Hub's website, specifically their Psychopedia, which I will definitely be coming back to in the future and did not know existed until this prep. And I'm super happy I found because it gives really concise definitions. Mm. So their definition, folia de is a shared psychotic disorder where the delusion is shared between two individuals. So you remember our good buddy, the DMS-5 from my sociopath story? Like yes. the, the book of yeah. all things illness, medical illness. Well, it doesn't recognize folia de as a unique condition. Rather, it includes some of the con- some of the symptoms of it in the section on psychotic disorders. So it's one of those catch-all popular, like uh, Munchausen. Yeah. It's not technically a thing. It's just what we all call. There are three criteria for assessing if a patient or patients are suffering from folia de. And again, this is not in the DMS-5. It's just the general understanding of the medical condition community. The first is that they have definite evidence that the partners had been in an intimate association. And that doesn't mean sexual, it just means close. Two, a high degree of commonality in the content of their delusion, although the formal psychosis may differ. So you may have schizophrenia, but have convinced me that your hallucinations are real. Then what I have is a hallucinatory disorder, whereas you have schizophrenia, but it's still the same. And the third is unequivocal evidence that the partners share support and accept each other's delusions. So I absolutely believe in your hallucinations so much so that I've internalized them myself. We have folia de. There are four subtypes of the disorder. The first is folia imposé. That's the delusional belief of a psychotic person that is imposed on another person or persons. Folia simultané the simultaneous development of an identical delusion between two or more individuals with psychosis who may be closely associated. Folie communique, a normal person suffers from a delusional belief as a psychotic person after, sorry, a normal person suffers from a delusional belief of a psychotic person after resisting it for a long time and then maintains it despite the separation. So I've communicated it to you. And folie induite, a person who is already psychotic adds new delusions from another closely associated individual with psychosis. So we're talking four shades of gray that are very close in the tonal scale, but with slight differentialities of where you pick up your psychotic belief. As the name suggests, the condition was first identified by French mental health professionals. I'm going to air quote professionals because this happened uh, in the 19th century late 19th century. So these are also the type of men who would like prescribe masturbation to women to get rid of our hysterics. So that's yeah. why that's we air quote professionals. They weren't entirely wrong. No. A good session of self-care will take care of a lot of problems in your exactly. life. Exactly. <laughs> Just saying. Hysteria was not a real condition, but I'm not going to say that these... <laughs> That pushing women towards self-care was not a good idea. Well, the problem was, is they were offering the treatment, a lot of them. Sure. Yeah. They so, should have gotten the vibrator that I... On the Amazon. <laughs> Where was that one? Yeah. Yeah. So, you may be surprised to know that the condition was first described by a psych- pr- mental health professional named Balergé in 1860. And at that time, he called it folie communiquée. The condition slash term folia de was popularized by Charles uh, Lazugue. 
and Jean-Pierre Farlette in a publication in 1877. Usually me that's going like... I know, and it's French too, right? But it's spelled so... L-A-S-E-G-U-E. La Sugue? La Sugue. I would not even attempt it. La Sague? Maybe La Sague. Charles La Sague and Jean-Pierre Farlette. So they published on the condition in 1877. And for those not familiar with French, the term literally, well, loosely translate to madness of two. Folie is kind of like a kind of. So really, they went outside the box when they named this bad boy. At least they didn't name it for themselves. True. That's why I say it generally translates and not directly translates, but. Because woohoo is not an English language. Yes, exactly. That's hard to quantify. Like with the wavy arms, like the car dealership guy. Yeah, hard. wacky wavy inflatable arm man. That's hard to put in words. Um, so definitions are great, but that's not what we're here for. Let's look at some examples of the condition. I think it's telling that when you Google foliage, what pops up is a lot of true crime websites. So yikers, buckle up. Yay. Yeah. The case that led to this diagnosis in the 19th century was that of a married couple named Margaret and Michael. And these are pseudonyms. Even back then, they wouldn't publish people's names in medical journals, which surprisingly progressive. But there you go. Both of them were 34 and believed that they were being persecuted by unknown people. And I think that's a translation issue because persecuted in French, persecute means like you're being pestered and bothered, whereas in English, it has a harder... Yeah, tone. to it. Yeah. So they believe that people would enter their homes while they, their home while they slept and spread dust and fluff and put on their shoes to wear them down. I mean, real low stakes, but it was a shared madness because they both believed this was happening. Weird. Yeah. Relatively harmless compared to some of the stories we're going to talk about, but it was the first initiating. It's what doctors first coined the term around was Margaret and Michael. Hmm. Now, I wonder if was there wasn't if there wasn't a neighbor coming in and just like messing with them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, levels of petty, if it was one of my neighbors and they did something like put a car up on cinder blocks in their front yard, I might be tempted to do something like that. <laughs> just to mess with them. Wear their shoes down. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so that's the case of Margaret and Michael. There's another case of a married couple more recently, though, that I researched and it was wild. So in the literature, they're identified as Mr. and Mrs. A. And this story comes from an academic article from 1993. So no, I don't have an update, but the story is hella interesting. And I think we could probably extrapolate of where these people are at the end of the story. So it's going to be pretty obvious probably what's happened to them. So, Mrs. A, the the woman and the couple, was 23 at the time of the incident that I'm going to tell you about in a bit, and she is of Hispanic descent. As a child, she experienced auditory hallucinations, including strange noises and footsteps in her home. When she went to the beach with her family as a teen, she would speak to the ocean, who responded in a man's voice that she would meet a man who was, quote, fair-skinned, tall, big-eared, compassionate, caring, and loving, and he would end her loneliness. So she was 14 when she first having conversations with the ocean. So there's the auditory hallucination. When she couldn't speak to the ocean because her family wasn't visiting, she spoke to the stars and the moon, for which her parents would call her crazy. So rather than getting her help, we'll just name call and shame her. 
parenting 101, guys. When trying to determine if there were any mental health issues in her family, the people putting together this academic paper uh, asked her about that, and Mrs. A told them that neighbors used to accuse her grandmother of being a witch because she Mm. spoke to spirits, but she was a known practitioner of Espiritismo, which is a religion that does communicate with spirits through mediums. So it read a little bit like um, a version of voodoo, or like similar Mm. to voodoo, where you commune with the spirits. So whether that was the religious practice and the, the grandmother was just being accused of being a witch and speaking to spirits or whether there was a mental health issue that she was having hallucinations of auditory hallucinations herself it's it's toss up what it is so that is mrs a's medical mental health background the other half of the equation is mr a and he was 27 at the time of the event that i'll tell you about and he is also hispanic He was diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia at the age of eight, which, yikes, that is a young age for a heavy diagnosis. I don't think the DMS allows you to diagnose that young. So that just gives you an indication of how bad the symptoms must have been. Have you ever seen that uh, Oprah special where they follow the young girl who's probably about six when she's diagnosed? I've seen a couple of documentaries with young kids being diagnosed. And she has some extreme schizophrenia. Yeah. Like violent schizophrenia now as she gets older like she's sort of it's interesting because like it was really about her family and her and dealing with that and they had to like separate so they had to have two apartments for a long time Mm -hmm. because they worried that she was going to hurt her younger brother right her younger brother has a a host of illnesses as well and they're Mm -hmm. not sure if he has schizophrenia but anyways and eventually her parents lived together again and then they separated and now her dad lives out of state but um, the last update I saw, she was doing quite well, but they're like, but she's sort of, um, she's in that 10, I think she's like eight or 10. So they're just worried about now what? Because they found a good medication. They're on right. a good, but What's you know, what are you going to do? Exactly. Because it's going to just throw her whole medication out yeah. of whack. But she's had the same hallucinations, like um, visual and auditory mm. hallucinations. So they all have names. Yeah. But uh, most of them have gone away now because they were all generally cats or animals. Um. So they all had the same, like, a normal lifespan. So, right. like... Oh. Um, yeah. So, like, some of her... Uh, one of them was a cat and he died because he was about nine years old or ten years old or something. That's usually... So it's, like, her hallucination, like, as, as the medication. Right gets better she's losing some of her like long-standing ones but and it's sort of her rationale as well they've passed on and because they they were an old cat and in her hallucinations they got old right so like they aged as like but what's the hormones do if puberty gonna do to that yeah like balance give her probably new ones but like that's that sort of like she's in a really good place now we don't know what puberty is gonna bring but it's still, like, the bunch of the documentaries I've watched on mental health issues, like, still, there's a reticence to diagnose too young. Yeah. Because what's a stage versus what's... So, yes, there's the hallucinatory aspect. But is that something that puberty is going to knock out and fix? Is it... it like, remember yeah. the Alice in Wonderland condition we were, I yes. mentioned briefly? That's only experienced by children. At a certain age, you go through puberty and it just stops. So there's something, chemical-wise... Yeah. Can't she can't. she had she still has a lot of yeah. hallucinations. She just has less of them, but like she's less violent. She's but they're like this is all of the doctors who tr- who who diagnosed her were like this is one of the worst cases of childhood schizophrenia. Right. Uh, yeah. I'm just thinking like yeah. 
some people would say you can't diagnose. There's no such thing as childhood schizophrenia because yeah. you can't diagnose at that yeah. age. But like That's she was point. one of the most. Yeah. The peop- the doctors who would diagnose for yeah. it are saying that that's yeah. what it is. Yes, exactly. Uh, back to Mr. A, though. So, like I said, he was eight when he was diagnosed with child with paranoid schizophrenia. Uh, as you might expect, Mr. A, because of that, was an isolated child. He didn't have many friends, and kids his own age would make fun of him. Sadly, children are terrible, and if you're odd, you're even more likely to take shit off them. Uh, He was an only child. He had a domineering and physically abusive father and a passive mother. So when he was talking to the people putting together this case, he described his childhood as dysfunctional, which I think might be an understatement. Mm -hmm. When he told his father he was being bullied at school, the father's suggestion was that his son just shoot the bullies. And he was serious because he also gave his son a gun. So Mr. A did not have a good childhood and is very lucky that... This isn't another type of story. I know. So, um, Mr. A's delusions were based on being controlled and persecuted by a pantheon of spirits. There were three primary good demons, as he called them, named Romanoff, the Baron, and LaBelle, of which Romanoff was the main and most powerful uh, delusion he was having. But there were also 19 secondary demons. Some were good and some were evil. So... That just puts into perspective the background of Mr. and Mrs. A and their mental health situation. So Mr. and Mrs. A met when Mr. A took out a personal ad in a magazine because uh, he was having a hard time meeting people and they were married within a week. Making good, stable choices with no family around to moderate things. On the wedding night, Mrs. A witnessed her new husband being, quote unquote, possessed by Romanoff. Mr. A slash Romanoff claimed to be the voice that she was talking to as a teenager when she spoke to the ocean, which normalized the whole thing to her. Because now her auditory hallucinations are, in fact, this man who she's now married. The auditory hallucinations told her who she was going to marry, and that would end her loneliness. So all of this just becomes normal and acceptable. As a married couple, Mr. and Mrs. A isolated themselves from society. They bopped around quite a bit, trying to find steady work for Mr. A. Obviously, you can expect it would probably be hard to find a job when you're suffering from paranoid schizophrenia without any sort of treatment. Um, and every time they moved, they just stayed within their two units. Like they didn't, they isolated themselves from family, pushed people away. They were together for several years during the, which Mr. A's illness was getting worse. And Mrs. A was getting to know the good and bad demons that he was afflicted with. So she was starting to see all 19 of them come out. But Romanoff dominated the delusions. She described him as, quote, a fallen angel with grayish black wings and possessed a sword with gems upon it. So very Archangel Michael type of imagery that got passed there. Things came to a head one night when Mr. and Mrs. A were out to dinner. While eating, they noticed that two patrons of the restaurant who weren't sitting with them and they didn't know were laughing at something that they were discussing. The A's thought that they were laughing at them, so they left the restaurant. When they got home, Romanoff took over Mr. A and informed Mrs. A that, quote, the enemies were laughing at them, but worse, that she must, quote, kill them or they will kill her. So the couple returned to the restaurant where Mr. A shot and killed the two diners they thought were laughing at them. The couple fled the scene and returned home where they each tried to kill themselves. It's not indicated how Mr. A did that, but Mrs. A ingested vaginal suppositories, perfume, and allergy pills. 
So that's going to give her a bum tum. <laughs> but uh, not really kill her, no. No, both survived their suicide attempts and were picked up by police. As you would expect slash hope, both were hospitalized separately. Mrs. A continued to have visual, auditory, and tactile hallucinations, as well as suicidal ideations. And to start with, the primary course of treatment for her was to just separate her from her husband. Like, physically separate. No medication or anything. Just take her away and see if that solves things. But they gave her phone and visit privileges with her husband. What? This is... Not, oh, God. She told her doctors that she was affected by Mr. A's demons worse when they talked and shortly thereafter. Uh, to which I say, duh. <laughs> She's suffering from folia, duh. Like, you're just ramping up the energy back up again between the two of them. Uh, it was during this... Oh, no, sorry. Yes, it was during this period that Mr. A's demons seemed to be internalized by Mrs. A. So it went from being Romanoff is his demon to Romanoff is in me. I'm with Romanoff. Romanoff comes with me now during that modest, modest break between them. She would go into trances where she claimed to be possessed by Romanoff. And Romanoff told Mrs. A that she needed to escape from the hospital and to kill herself or else she would never see her husband again. Uh, when the suicide attempts got out of hand, and there were many of them, uh, she tried to strangle herself with a telephone cord, for example. She repeatedly dropped her metal bed frame on her head. Like, this is like an ongoing, repeated attempt over and over and over again. Uh, they, that's when they decide to cut off contact between her and her husband. They put her under supervision for a period of time, and the suicidal ideation seemed to stop. And then as soon as they let her back out and stopped with the one-on-one -on -one supervision, they started up again. So she was sick. Really, really sick. Please tell me they eventually started to medicate her. <laughs> Uh, yes, my next point. This is also when they started her on antipsychotics. Thank God. At which point the symptoms started to go away, though her auditory hallucinations were still happening, and Romanoff disappeared. So she had always had the auditory hallucinations yeah. even before Mr. A came along, so I don't think you'd be that surprised that they can't get rid of those. Or, I mean, you would think the antipsychotics would do it, but like, let's take care of the big dogs first, and yeah. then we'll go for the puppies. <laughs> yeah. As of 1993, Mrs. A was still in a state psychiatric hospital and was divorcing her husband and was making strides to integrate herself into the hospital community. So one of the things she did when she was first admitted was she wouldn't go to group. She wouldn't go mm. into the, the, com the communal rooms. Like, she was kept very much to herself. And then as soon as she broke from her husband and they started on antipsychotics, she started integrating, into integrating and inter interacting with others. Uh, again, by 1993, Mr. A was still in a maximum security forensic unit and was deemed unable to stand trial. So, like I said, I have no update. If I had to suspect, if I had to speculate, and they're both still alive, I would guess Mr. A is probably still incarcerated. Though that was 20-some-odd years ago. So, unfortunately, they might not have long lifespan yeah. for that situation. Her, she might be out if she's still alive. But I would hope heavily medicated. What I found interesting in reading this particular article was the following stat, and that is that when non-inciting, when the non-inciting person of a folia de situation has a pre-existing personality disorder, there is only a 40% chance of recovery when they are separated from the insider. So she is getting better and she's dropped his, uh, his um, delusions. Yeah. So she's within that 40%. But, like, for the most part, 60% of people won't recover in her situation. Uh, 
they'll like continue to internalize the other person's psychosis. So. Yeah, she's just left dealing with her own yes. psychosis. Yes. So, while the term folie à is the most well-known, there are cases where madness spreads to a larger group of people. And this next case is an example of folie à trois, so uh, madness of three, and it happened in South Carolina in the early 2000s. Uh, and in this case, there were three sisters impacted in this little clusterfuck of a situation. Again, no names. So the first to talk about is sister number one. She was the youngest and 21 when the incident happened. And she appears to have been the originator of the folie amongst the sisters. So in her last year of high school, she had difficulty sleeping, but basically did fine and went on to college. In her second year of college, her insomnia returned and was compounded by social isolation. She left at that point and went home to live with her sisters and take care of the oldest sister's kids. And they reported at that time that she had developed a flat affect. So very monotonous tone, mm-hmm. low, medium energy, like just just existing, not living yeah. dynamically, just existing. Sister two was the oldest. She was a college grad and a fourth grade teacher. When things started going sideways in this folie à situation, she broke up with her boyfriend and she had no kids. So at that point, her sisters and her family unit were her social life. Sister three was the middle child. She had attended most of a four-year college, but dropped out a few months away from graduation because of depression. She married at 19 and had three kids by the time of the incident. uh, And she was 22 at the time. So she had one three-year-old which was a girl and two 18-month-old boys who were twins. It's a lot for 22. Yes. When you have to leave school because you're depressed. That's a lot, a lot, a lot to carry. And she wasn't employed outside the home. She was married. Her husband was around. She's just a stay-at-home mom. So here's the order of events that can be considered the ramp up to the height of the madness. So the 18 months since Sister One moved home from college, the lives of the sisters became more and more intertwined. Uh, They all had the same mother, and she had mental health issues. And Sister 3, who was the one with the kids, was worried that uh, she would harm her grandchildren. So that was kind of the the, the spark in this whole situation, was that concern. Within six months, all three sisters were living together to help out with the three kids. So they were living with Sister Number 3 and her husband and her three kids. The husband to sister number three asked that his sister in law sisters in law move out within a couple of months of that, and they did, to the house next door. So there wasn't as much separation as there probably needed to be. Once that happened, the sisters became inseparable. They spent all of their waking hours together. They became increasingly obsessed with religion, spending hours praying together, holding their own prayer services, and having their own Bible study group. This became their focus, was this religious mania that infected their lives. They became more and more isolated into themselves. They even cut out family members. So just the three of them. That's what they cared about in the kids. That was their their bubble. So what happened and why are we talking about them? Well, one day, all three sisters showed up at a random house, knocked on the door, and when the owner answered, asked if their rooms were ready. Of course, the owner didn't know what was going on, so closed the door in their face, as you do when randos show up. Yeah. That didn't go over well with the girls, though, so they tried forcing their way in. When they broke a window, the homeowner called the cops, who arrived pretty quickly, and that's when things got out of hand. While sisters two and three attacked an officer, sister one entered the house through the broken window and went on to assault the homeowner. 
When additional officers arrived on the scene, the sisters got extremely violent. Uh, and according to police reports, they were biters and kickers. <laughs> so... The woman wouldn't say anything about why they did what they did on the scene, but they are quoted as making references to, quote, God, Satan, and the effects of Judgment Day. So their religious mania was... Out of control. Out of control. Um, it's not on my notes, but I will say that they showed up, the three of them at this house, and they had the kids with them. Oh. So the kids witnessed all this. Oh, those poor children. The lead up to the incident is weird. Uh... And was relayed to a court-appointed psychiatrist after the fact, which is how the academics that I used got their article. And so this is what happened. In the three days before they showed up at that guy's place, the sisters were praying nonstop without sleep. Like, just 72 hours straight prayer. Sister One became convinced that God, Sister One is the youngest, became convinced that God had a plan for her and her sisters and would provide for them. Part of that plan was that God would provide them with a specific home, the one where they went to and tried to get into. That, in her mind, was a gift from God. And so that's why they asked if their rooms were ready, because they were going to move in and take over this home as per God's plan. She thought of herself as Moses being led to the promised land. And they prayed while driving over to that home and believed, quote, anything was possible at the time. God had intended for us to stay at that house for a while. He was guiding us. So this shared religious madness has now turned into actions. I don't know what the cops were thinking, but after they arrested the sisters, they put all three of them into the same jail cell. For two days, the sisters chanted, sang, sat in a circle, and invoked the name of God while nude in the cell. Uh, their rationale for the, the lack of the kit was they were created in God's image, and that image didn't include clothes, so they wouldn't wear them themselves. Again, I have questions about belly buttons. That's just me. They would not eat, and they would not clean themselves. Anytime officers approached their cell, they became violent and would attack the officers if they got close enough. Cops even maced them, and it didn't slow them down. That's... Wow, that's a lot of mania. Again, like, it's just like Sabina getting smoked twice and still yeah. getting up and running. Like, that is a lot of mental power to get you yeah. through the physical crises happening yeah. to your body. Uh, eventually, 15 correctional officers were required to enter the cell to subdue the sisters and restrain them. Holy. 15 for three girls. They were involuntarily hospitalized for care at that point. I mean, yeah. <laughs> because DMS-5 doesn't recognize folia as a condition, the sisters were each diagnosed individually. So Sister 1, who I said was the instigator for the folie, was diagnosed with schizophrenia. Um, the chronic undifferentiated type. I don't know what that means, but there's a specific subset, and that's what she had. She was found not guilty of the crime of breaking and entering and assaults um, for reasons of insanity. Her rationale was that God wanted her to have the victim's house, coupled with the perceived consequences of being turned into a pillar of salt if she walked away. Uh, all of that prevented her from recognizing the moral wrongfulness of her actions. That was her defense, and the prosecution did not fight to get that overturned. Like, sometimes, like, a yeah. insanity defense is just, like, a... Yeah, attempt to get yeah. out of jail, yeah. And prosecutors will fight it, and this time they were like, no, we're good. <laughs> yeah. This lady gets help. Same we're page. Okay Same page. We're good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the prosecution, like I said, didn't fight. Sister two and three were treated with antipsychotics, and that ended their condition. So, again, clear sign that sister one was the instigator of the folie madness. Uh, they also pled guilty based on reasons of insanity. So all three sisters spent time in medical facilities, 
apart and were eventually released into outpatient care. They weren't allowed to see each other unless it's supervised, and they were ordered by the court to all live in different counties. So the court has recognized that these three can't be together, lest they get back into another situation. So I read a lot of cases about Folia Adair for the story, and I wish I could tell you about all of them, but it's already a pretty long story, so I'm going to stop there. But there are a bunch of cases that you may not think of as Folia Adair, but are part of our zeitgeist now. So Pauline Parker and Juliet Hulm are the inspiration for Heavenly Creatures. They killed one of the girl's mother, and that's been classified as a Folia Adair case. Morgan Geyser and Anissa Weir, uh, the Slender Man Killers, very recent. Uh, the Trump family of Australia. Uh, Christine talked about them on And That's Why We Drink. Check that out. That's a really crazy, interesting story. That's an entire family, like multiple generations, that seem to have picked up this shared mania. Uh, Cam McLeod and Briar Schmigelski, who you yeah. talked about this summer. Uh, details are still scant, but I think when they dig into it, they're going to find Folia Doe was probably at play to a certain extent. Something set one of them off. Yeah. Probably... Some, because they were close and traveling together. I'm, I'm going to guess that's what it's going to come out in the long run. So what links all of these cases together is isolation. All of these people start off in, a, in an isolated state. And as soon as someone comes in to break that isolation, that creates an unshakable bond. And if there is any sort of mania or psychosis in there, that bond is now one and it's shared between the two of them. And it just spirals out of control from there. Um, it's almost as if buying into someone else's delusion is preferable to being alone. And so mm. that's where we get this fully edge spiral happening. Well, for your first case, the ocean told her he would end her loneliness. loneliness. So He was lonely because he was isolated by his parents and his medical condition. The girls, all of them, all three sisters, at one point reported depression in their yeah. teens, early 20s. Um, breaking up with boyfriends, isolating themselves as a group. So it's all of that. Yeah, and a lot of children, so that was, like, their focus, and then... Yeah. So that's my story about Folia Day. I hope everyone had a lot of fun. (laughs) (laughs) The human mind is an amazing and scary place. (laughs) Isn't it? So tell me your story. All right, let me find it. (laughs) No, from memory. Oh, Lord. (laughs) I can barely remember what I did yesterday. So, as I said, I've been cleaning up my PVR and watching the last season of Frankie Drake Mysteries, which is good because it starts again. It's already started, the new season. Um, it's a show on CBC that's set in Prohibition, Toronto. You love your CBC. I do. I think it's the new fan, yeah. You had, like, what, three channels growing up? Yeah. <laughs> We had cable later on. Like, we had a cable when I was a teenager, but not until I was a teenager. Um, God, I only had three channels when we moved into the house in Pac-Man first, and we were too cheap to pay for cable. <laughs> like, before they went to digital. Yeah, like, but you were okay with that, because you were a newfie, and that's what you grew up on. <laughs> well, it was also really cheap. That too. <laughs> I could get CBC, CTV, and CHCH at the house Ooh. in Pac-Man. There's a blast from the past. Yes. So, like, we got some movies. We got, like... The news. Hockey. We got... Yeah, I don't watch the news. Uh, we got hockey. We got CTV. So that covers all of the main, like, big shows. We got the Olympics, because it bops yeah. between either of those. So. Exactly. We had the Olympics. So, we you know, we were good for the first few years. And then they switched to 
digital. So then our giant, the only reason we didn't have satellite is because we had the giant old school antenna mm-hmm. off the side of the house looked like an oil derrick. Yeah. yeah. Um, so we're like, well, we might as well not like, and then we finally did eventually get a satellite dish. But now we have Shaw. But I'm getting five in the new subdivision, Yay. so I won't have to have a satellite dish. <laughs> I don't want to. Because I'm really enjoying my fire stick. Welcome to the 21st century. <laughs> I know. I have such shit. Like, literally, last Friday when I was uploading, it took two hours to upload our episode to Google and SoundCloud. Jeez, Louise, both of those take five minutes here. I know. <laughs> I know. So, um, Frankie Drake Mysteries is a show, on, as I said, on CBC that's set in Prohibition in Toronto and focuses on Frankie Drake, a formal signal driver slash spy from the First World War turned private detective. She opens a detective agency with her friend Trudy, who is African-Canadian, and with he- gets help from Mary Shaw, who's a morality officer at the Toronto Police Services, and Flo, a pathologist and assistant in the Toronto City Morgue. Sounds like Charlie's Angels, but the 20s. Sort of like that. <laughs> um, it's kind of interesting. It was so funny because they're doing promos for the new season that mm-hmm. starts. I think it started on Monday. So yesterday. And I was looking because it came up on Instagram. So I was like looking at the comments. And of course, all of these like men are like, that's not period accurate. And it's a female. Oh, all these woke shows are not going to last a season. And. People are like, well, it's actually on its third season, yeah. so settle down. You knuckle-draggers. <laughs> yeah. It's actually, it's it's a cute little show. Like, oh, it's CBC. I'm sure they're glad to have that review put up on their poster. It's a cute little show, Andy. Four and a half stars, you know. <laughs> it's, like, it's not going to, it's not like a deep crime. And it's sort of like a Miss Fisher's Mysteries. Okay. A little so it's, bit. it's not taking like scandal or lost out of the top TV show lists. No. Got it. But it's it's I, I like it. I enjoy watching it. It's kind of funny. It's a little bit progressive, even for its time. Yeah. It has like a really diverse cast. You Which, know, we have um, African Canadian, Asian. Like, there's a pretty diverse group of right. predominantly female. And while I Canadian, generally don't like to agree with mouth breathing knuckle draggers. Their points about representation are probably pretty close to dead on. <laughs> but these people did exist back then. Yes, yes. So maybe you know. just not in positions of authority, like. But these officers. people generally aren't. Yes. Like police officers were still all white. And dudes. <laughs> and dudes. Right? Like one of the things is this uh, morality officer, Mary Shaw, it's her dream to be a, become a cop, but she's a morality officer because it's the only way she'll even remotely be a police right. officer in the 20s. In Toronto, and morality officers did exist. Yes. And we're going to talk about them. Yay! So, um, I wanted to look into the idea of their morality officers. What was a real thing? What did they do? So, as you have it just indicated you knew that the Toronto Police Service had a morality department? Most of the Prohibition era big cities did, I think. Well, uh, I don't want to... Oh, no. Am I stepping all over your story? No, no. It's fine. Okay. <laughs> uh, I don't want this to become a rant because most of this stuff that they did won't fly today. But I think that we can all agree that the quote-unquote morality of women is still policed much more strictly than, say, that of men. <laughs> No shit. 
And the understatement of the century goes to Andy. So we're not going to talk too much about that, but here's back to the story at hand. Picture it. Toronto. 1886. I just finished season three of Golden Girls, so I get it. A growing perceived threat from dangerous classes Mm -hmm. was growing within the community when Mayor Wilson Holmes Howland wanted to create a special unit of the Toronto Police Services to deal specifically with vice, sin, and crimes which heavily impacted women and children. You know, all instruments of immorality in society. Translation, the fun stuff. Mm. Yeah, that's (laughs) true. Howland just won Toronto's mayoral race that year, but promised to make Toronto a beacon of morality to the world. Okay. Even going so far as to call the city, quote-unquote, Toronto the good. (laughs) I mean, no, but okay. (laughs) The morality department was set up under the social purist pretext of policing people's everyday behaviors, and that's a lot of P's in the same sentence. Yep. Uh, Also, a lot of P's in the decision to make that group. (laughs) The force strove to curb the more unruly aspects of popular culture, prohibiting bonfires, restraining weekend revels, banning firecrackers, and curbing the activities of mischievous urchins who sought to soil the crinoline dresses of respectable ladies on national holidays. So basically, Frostwicka Western got shut down. (laughs) Didn't it ever. (laughs) The The offenses against public order that morality officers policed were gambling, Sabbath laws, being an absentee father, drug dealing, interracial relationships, homosexuality, bootlegging, and alcoholism, vagrancy, family abuse, and prostitution. Some of those I will get on board with. Others, I will not. The roots of this social Puritan doctrine can be traced back to, well, British colonialism and your Puritans from last week. What, what? See, we're all a ball of neuroses. Oh, yes. Canada's national identity was strongly linked to British ideals and back then, and most still sort of is. Yeah. Uh, One of these imported beliefs is that the assumption that bad people behaving objectively badly and that these people need to be made good by sovereign government. This government does so by limiting the civilian population's freedoms and regulating their social interactions to ensure that people remain, quote-unquote, moral and good, and thereby can make a new generation of, quote, morally good people. I mean, you see that kind of philosophy carry through with the residential school system, right? Yes. It was the same principle. And um, eugenics. Yeah. Now, of course, everyone could act not morally or socially good, but women and people of color will, were seen by government as inherently, inherently lesser or more susceptible to temptation or sin, thus needing to be policed far more heavily than their white or male counterparts. The resulting system of social governing was easily abused and used to keep the divide between classes wide. Methods like disproportionately enforcing the laws where the accused were of a lower classes, making special exemptions for people who lived or served those of the higher classes, and flat-out profiling. Since women and people of color were seen as inherently more susceptible to temptation, they were automatically made the target of systems efforts to socially reform people. I'm getting, like, flooded with, like, memories of different classes that I took, and I'm starting to realize where the roots of my feminism have come from. 
reading and learning about bullshit like this for six years. Because morality officers policed offenses and not crimes, usually bylaws, Mm. their methods often called for them to threaten fines or jail times rather than full-out arrests. Oh, so bribable offenses. Like things that... Oh, am I stepping all over your story again? Nope. Okay. Which made them popular amongst people as a social service. And actually, the morality department is where a lot of the social services we come to know today started. Um, because these used to deal with animal abuse. The Humane right. Society came out of morality departments. And then Child's Aid. It's really sad that Humane Society came before Children's Aid. But anyway. Also not surprising. No, no, you know. Oh, you oh. need those little hands in the workshops, Andy. <laughs> Uh, so they were, became popular as a social service, and people knew that when moralities walked up, they would probably not be arrested or get that unwanted publicity that goes along with being arrested and going through the public courts. In this way, these officers became regulators of the community. Mm. Ordinary people interacted with them and therefore came to trust them. As a result, these officers had many people willing to snitch and give them information on who might be a suspected drug dealer prostitute, gambler, or absentee father. Awesome. Yeah. Nice. (laughs) Cool, cool. Cool, 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 cool. Uh, Let's look at some of these morality crimes a little more in depth. Absentee fathers. One of the biggest jobs of this special unit, one of the biggest jobs a special unit had was finding absentee fathers from Canada, the U.S., and Great Britain, and then coercing them into paying maintenance payments. (laughs) If I'm in the UK, I'm paying dick all. <laughs> like, come on. I think they were finding people that fled to Canada from their families oh, in the US. Oh, got it. Yeah. Right. Toronto, big international yeah. hub. Oh, yeah. Good on them. And then these maintenance payments would go towards supporting their wives and children. This reinforced a family structure where the father was a provider and the mother was unable to support herself or her family. This statement i don't really find is true especially not in this day and age we still have child support payments yeah and in ontario as far as i understand it it's a simple formula it looks at how much person a makes versus how much person b makes and then whatever the split of custody looks like and then they sort of have a formula so even if i made more than my husband and we split up and we had equal custody whoever makes the more makes the most money does have to pay something yeah regardless of who that is yeah so, I mean, that is less about someone not being able to support and more about giving, making sure that the children have equal opportunity no matter what house they're in. Right. I don't think that was the intention back in the morality police. Era. Oh, no. No, no. But it was also so that, like, women and, like, women wouldn't have to go out and become prostitutes because they needed to feed their children. Yeah. <laughs> Night. I have in late 19320. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes, tell us about the way future machine. What happens in the future, Andy? In the late 1920s, this was supposed to say, the attitudes towards policing moved away from social management and more into crime and punishment. Police and social activism groups agreed that tracking down deadbeat dads was no longer a police matter. In 1929, the newly established family court system took over in this area. Got it. Let's talk about some Sabbath laws. Yeah, Black Sabbath. Or alternatively known as Blue Laws. 
Oh, I don't know why. Were a series of bylaws designed by certain committees to prevent people from working on the Sabbath, a.k.a. Sunday, to respect God's days of rest. These were the most intrusive set of laws enforced by the morality department and disproportionately affected working class people and favored the upper class. One of the best examples of this was the fact that taxis and streetcars used by the public to get around were not allowed to work on Sundays, Ooh. but private chauffeurs could, could hmm. of the wealthy were able to work. Beyond preventing many forms of work, they also prevented people from doing certain leisure activities that could be interpreted as work. <laughs> Most of the limiting or banned activities come perilously, 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 we'll go with that, <laughs> close to what a historian's description of working class leisure times activities in that period would be. Gardening, uh, clothing making, knitting. Yeah, so anything that uh, that class would have done for leisure was pretty much banned on Sundays. Right. The Toronto uh, police were forced to spend an inordinate amount of time and energy enforcing Sabbath laws, Sabbath laws, which again went way past having anything to do with religion. Most workers at that time endured a six-day work week consisting of 10 or 12-hour shifts, and Sunday was their only day off. Yeah. It could be argued that the auxiliary intention of the Sabbath laws was to minimize and suppress the movement and congregation of working-class citizens in their free time. Another example of how this law favored the wealthy over the lower class is that games of ball in public were banned as Sunday activities, but after a constable arrested a number of Toronto Golf Club members for playing <laughs> on Sunday, a judge quickly dropped the charges. He ruled that golf was not a game of ball similar to any sense of the games enumerated in or intended to be prohibited by the stature. Right. But baseball and... Things that you can pick up in your local neighborhood lot as a kid with scrap, no-go. The stuff you need, 19 holes and a lot of really expensive equipment. 18 and holes. 18 holes, and I'm going to guess a black caddy. Okay. Exactly. And let's uh, look at the doozy. Oh, Prostitution. Wait. Before you go on, Sabbath laws. We, in Ontario, couldn't... Stores couldn't be open on Sundays into the 90s, I want to say? Early yeah. 90s? And Newfoundland, I think it was even later than that. No, I think we were open first. Seemed maybe. Okay. But still, it just goes to... Even Boxing Day, that was a big thing when they decided to allow stores to open up on Boxing Day. There's all these morality laws that, like, carried over, and I don't think we ever really associated it with the what? morality police of it all, but there it is. So, Prostitution. Another big task for the force and morality department is these anti-prostitution laws. The primary for, uh, focus of the anti-prostitution laws was to make prostitution unprofitable so that women would instead pursue legitimate ways to make money. In essence, the people who put these laws in place were attempting to save women from a life of prostitution. Yep. Mm, big orchestra for their grand finale. I don't know. <laughs> However, the definition of what makes a person a prostitute at that time was very wide and not really what we think of today. Ah. Do you have said definition? Oh, I... So, a lot of this section, the next section I got from this great article called Nostalgia Tripping, Toronto, Toronto's Morality Police. In the late 1800s, women, young women started to leave their rural homes and move into the city to find work. 
Work for a woman at the time was limited to maids, secretaries, factory workers, nurses, and teachers. Domestic service offered meager, meager wages, and the schedules were extremely demanding. And there was also the possibility of sexual harassment from their employers. And the city's numerous factories, on the other hand, offered better compensation and shift work, which meant that workers were able to partake in the num- numerous urban amusements in the evenings mm-hmm. or weekends. In the early 1800s, entertainment entrepreneurs began to realize that the revenue potential resulting from the inclusion of a female audience. So they saw, huh, there's this working women. There's half an audience there that we're not and tapped they into. have... Disposable income. Disposable income now. Thus, many venues offered lower or no admission prices for special seating sections for spectator events and shows that catered to women. This was the high point for a number of commercial entertainment venues operating in Toronto. They came to include amusement parks, vaudeville houses, dance halls, and Nickelodeons. Partaking in this growing industry made women target for morality officers who heavily patrolled areas, often plain clothes. Their aim was put to put an end to brothels and arrest streetwalkers with a goal of making prostitution unprofitable and convincing women to engage in what was considered legitimate forms of employment, preferably in the domestic service. So even factory girls were dancing on the line. Yeah. To achieve this, the charge of vagrancy was often applied to substantiate arrests on the, subs- and the suspicion of prostitution. Investigators targeted a special, so, a specific social class and quote-unquote type of woman, single, young, working class, those who could offend, and whose only offense was to stroll down a street or a park at night, which was actually enough to warrant their arrest. I was going to say, it sounds like I could be picked up for this, yep. except the whole strolls down a street at night in a park. I won't do that because I'm afraid. <laughs> for example, on March 1st, 1912... The Toronto Daily Sun reported about Angus Gillingham. According to the story, she was a young girl on the vagrancy list who was remanded for a week. Their morality department hoped, hoping to get her relatives to take her back. <laughs> it was not certain whether um, Gillingham was a prostitute or not, and that her name does not appear on the late pages of the newspaper before or after her arrest. But the fact that she was on the vagrancy list indicates that she had been arrested more than once and that she landed in a week of custody was most likely for walking unaccompanied after dark or hanging out with men in taverns. (gasps) So I definitely would have gotten picked up (laughs) in my 20s (laughs) because I was that kind of girl. Now, hold on to your hat for the next bit. Another concern of the morality officers was the occasional prostitute. Of course. <laughs> of course. A category of women who worked during the day and spent evenings in the company of men who often paid for their supper, shows, and drinks. Uh-oh. <laughs> in the eyes of society reformers, if your date bought you a dinner and then you went home with him, you were a hooker. <laughs> okay, <And> good. <laughs> they bought me dinner, but I won't go home with them. <laughs> <laughs> And your daytime work was only an excuse to be avoid being arrested for vagrancy. Sure. So really, your whole thing was you wanted to be a hooker, but you right. had a day job to keep I put in your... a 12-hour shift at yeah. a factory that had very little to no occupational safety yeah. concerns. And it's all a ruse, so I can go out and sleep with 
less than desirable men because they have to go to prostitutes to sleep with them. But again, these women were just often just going on dates, enjoying their life, living their best lives. Right. Being single. But don't they know their fathers are supposed to find them a husband? Not them. (laughs) Dance halls were perceived as the central locale for semi-professional types of prostitution as strangers, men and women, mingled with each other freely. I mean... Clutch your pearls, ladies! We can't say too much, because Tina Turner validated that concern with Private Dancer, so... Private Dancer, dance up the money! Yes, children, if you did not know, that song is about prostitution. (laughs) The women, of course, did not consider themselves to be prostitutes. No shit! Therefore, the undercover officers must have been shocked to hear that many of them often propositioned their dance partners for dates. Although men most of the time were the first to initiate contact, it was women alone who were charged with the moral responsibility when confronted with offenses of offers. Sorry, let me start that again. It was women alone who were charged with the moral responsibility when confronted with offers of sexual favors in exchange for a drink or an ice cream cone. See, here's the thing. We're too weak-spined to know how to keep ourselves out of moral trouble. And yet, when we find ourselves in moral trouble, it's all our fault. Mm-hmm. Personally, it usually takes more than an ice cream to get my knickers off, but... God, some of us are cheap date, Andy, so... Unless I want to, and then I just like, don't <laughs> need ice cream to get my knickers <laughs> off. Because yeah. I'm a person who can make up her own damn mind. Right, yes. And if I'm attracted to someone, usually they don't have to buy me dinner. Right. If I'm, like, super attracted to them. I saw a great meme this week that said, uh, gentlemen, if you get a woman to undress in front of you and her bra and panties match, you weren't the one who made any decision that night. So I say, like, women often know if she's going to sleep with you really oh, quickly, yeah. but there's a lot of things that men can do to... Screw that up. Yeah, to pull quickly. those panties up, and those panties will go, like, dry in a moment. Yep. But, like, yeah. So if if you think a girl's vibing on you, just, just shush. Yeah. Shush. Telling her all about your family's mental health history on date two, uh, including suicides, it's going to make a pretty dry nether region. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah. Speaking from personal experience. (laughs) If a girl shaved, if you get an idea that that girl shaved her legs for you. If she shaved and if the bra matches the panties and the bra isn't like a nude color, like the one hanging off the door just two inches from Andy's hand, then really good sign that you're going to get lucky. Yeah. You just, you just not, just need to, like, yeah. Get out of your own way. (laughs) Just, yeah. There's so many guys who do stuff that cockblock themselves. Oh, yeah. (laughs) So, uh, I would have been arrested if these laws were in place when I was in college. Um, To quote Lizzie Hale in the song Uncomfortable, I did it because I want it, and I did it because I'm gonna, and I did it just because I can. I did it because it made me feel so good, and I did it because fuck the man. There it is. Uh, with most uh, with most things on the whole, it was not all bad. It did allow women to join the force in one of the first female roles outside of admin slash secretary jobs. In the early 1910s, they were brought in under the idea that they would be better suited to deal with young women who had been acting immorally. And that's what they would make themselves be a moralizing influence in the police service as a whole. Mm. Also, with the existence of police women, was encouraged. Oh, hold on, I've got something in my eye. Also, they feel that the existence of police women 
was an encouragement for women to come forward with assault charges against their abusive husbands. Women would trust that if they went to a police officer who was also female, then something would more likely to get done. <laughs> okay. Data shows no, but okay. Maybe they had those thoughts in 1910. I mean, we still hold on to them in 2019. I don't uh, know if they're valid. Yet, the, morali- the majority of female uh, morality officers' duty included arresting and searching female suspects and interviewing female suspects and victims. As well, rather than being on the beat in dangerous parts of town, they would be searching for people, though mostly women, acting immorally, particularly in places where men, men and women come together. They were never tasked with the same duties as their male counterparts, so they were often seen as more social workers within the police force than actual members of the force. Hmm. So in the show, Frankie Drake, you know, uh, Mary Shaw does often refer to one of her duties as measuring hemlines, and apparently that is something they did. Yeah. My aunts, when they went to school, and my mother, uh, the nuns, nuns, they always had the ruler, and they'd measure the hemline. But this would be like, you could be stopped in the street of yeah. Toronto and be like, a morality officer would be like, I'm going to measure your hemline. And see your ankle, young lady. Yeah. <clears throat> Although this was the 20s flapper, so I guess it was knees, maybe. Maybe. Uh, although the 1920s feminists argued that these police women were taken on by were taken on by police for show more than actual police duties, and the interest from the upper ranks in police women faded along with their interest in social management. After this sort of morality department became defunct in the late 1920s, early 1930s. There was no police women on the force. And actually, oh. it took until after World War II Whoa. for um, there to be gained a little ground for actual police women. So huh. Weird. When women moved into so many of the job markets because of the lack of men, you would have think they would have moved into police force, too. Weird. So the department ran until, like I said, into the 1930s and was seen as a forerunner to many social assistance programs. Um, such as the Children's Aid Society. So that's my story. Uh, And now we know that I would have been arrested as a hooker in the 1900s to 1920s, and so it's a good thing I was born in the 80s. There you go. And you definitely would have been. Oh, for sure. A single woman living alone. With your cats. With my cats. So. Lots of herbs around. I'd have been strung up starting in the 1400s. I was just going to say, you would have witch, for sure. You've got familiars, you've got... Would have. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, I would have been too, but uh, that's because I'm actually. But yes, so we would have been in trouble in many. So all of our, that's why, you know, if we had, I guess, reincarnated spirits, I'm sure that. Well, every time we have a national census and they ask you for your employment type, I always want to put spinster. Because for the longest time, that's what women, no matter what work they did, if they were unmarried, they were supposed to put down that they were, their employment, their job was spinster. Well, did I not tell you about my wedding certificate? Yeah. That I, my condition was a spinster before I got married. What up? <laughs> Spinsters in the house! Dan was a bachelor, but I was spinster. a spinster. For sure. Probably because I was in my late 20s. Right. You should have yeah. been married 10 years by then. Exactly. Mm. Oh, Jamaica and their holdovers to <laughs> British. I'm surprised you didn't talk about the, um, the Middle East. Because they still have active morality police. I was literally just looking at Toronto. Yeah. At this sort of... I think it's telling that 1920s, well, 1880s to 1920s, 30s Toronto versus modern 2000s, 
Saudi Arabia, Egypt. Yeah, but their whole, like, I guess, yeah, it's a similar morality issue that they have in their religious belief, yeah. but... They take I'm, it to a bit further of a extension than what we level, do. Yes. But I was just more looking at, like, the sort of nostalgia about Toronto and the sort of 20s mm-hmm. prohibition. Like, how many people in Canada forget that we had prohibition? Yeah. We just wasn't, we weren't as strict with forcing it. Yeah. And I, I didn't grow up with that sort of, because New, uh, Newfoundland wasn't part of Canada at the time and didn't have prohibition. We actually ran rum to... Everyone. Everyone. <laughs> yeah. And we thank you for your service. <laughs> Rum would run through um, St. Pierre and Miquelon. Yeah. And uh, down to Boston and New York. Where the Kennedys took it. That's where they make their money. Fun times. Yeah. Because unlike parts of Ontario, we couldn't just have like a tunnel. Right. Capone to just smuggle his Seagrams or whatever beer company claims. Right. Fun times. Yeah. Well, that's our show for this week. Uh, Just a reminder that we have our contest uh, coming up. Well, it's running right now until October 4th. Go to wherever you're downloading and listening to this podcast. Leave us a good rating or a review. And we say good, we mean middle of the pack to better, preferably at the better end. Mm -hmm. Take a screenshot of that. Send it to us at rabbitholespodcast at gmail.com. Or post it to one of your social media. Keep in mind that we are old fogies and only know Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. So the new stuff, we would love to you to post, but we have no way of commenting on that. Um, tag us in that, and you'll get entered into the draw. And the winner will get to go to our merch page, uh, which is our Redbubble store, and pick out any of the item that they would like. And we will buy that and send it to you gratis. If you want to, there it is. If you want to know, see, because we use the same tone all the time, mm, so I have to true. start that and then I'll find the path. So if you want to know more about the show, head over to our website, which is rabbitholespodcast.com. You'll see the show notes. You'll get the Redbubble store via the merch tab, and you can check out the Patreon page uh, via the sponsor tab. And if you want to tell us about a rabbit hole that you like to fall down or that you want us to fall down for you, just email us at rabbitholespodcast at gmail.com. Yes, and if you want to see what we're doing on social media, especially my creative social media this week, although I forgot to post today because I was really behind, see what I'm doing creatively, especially when we do some more blue topics like sex dolls. Oh boy, yeah. Um, From last week, or two weeks ago, I guess. Two weeks now. Um, You can see us on Instagram at Rabbit Holes Podcast, Facebook Rabbit Holes Podcast page, and Twitter at Rabbit Holes Pod. You could also, we already did the right review. Sorry, I've got to go through the... I know, the checklist, the mental checklist. I, I know, damn it. Uh, if you like what we're, you're, what we're doing, please uh, tell everybody you know about us. We love new listeners, and we love new listeners from new places and trains! And we're going to talk over it, because we got to get on with the night. I got to shower, I got to eat, I got to get to bed. I got to get home. You got to get that cat hair out of your eye. Yes, because it's driving me nuts. So you get to have the train in the background as I tell you that there's only one last thing to do, and that's to remind you that if you don't know where you're going, any road will take you there. I take a train! Bye, guys! <laughs> Bye! <laughs>